Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dromiskin. Call 087-660-4237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now: michael at lmfm dot ie. Friday morning, the twelfth of August. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till eleven a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Preparations are underway for Budget 23. In the run-up to the 27th of September, the government will look at the options it has for a 6.7 billion euro package through the eyes of a Department of Finance Tax Strategy Group. This week, that group warned that the government's options may be limited somewhat because of how it might collect less on alcohol sales, less tax on alcohol sales. The reason for this is minimum unit price Pricing, alcohol pricing here uh, and people travelling from here to go north for cheap cross-border alcohol shopping. The tax strategy group paper on excise duty says it's too early to gauge the impact of uh, the introduction of MUP, but it warns it is clear its introduction has resulted in price differentials on alcohol products across the border, which might lead to an increase in cross-border trade, undermining the tax take from alcohol sales. Let's speak to Eunan McKinney uh, about this once again. Eunan, as you probably know, is Head of Communications with Alcohol Action Ireland. He's on the line together with Vincent Jennings, who's uh, the CEO of uh, the CSNA, that's the Convenience Stores and Newspapers Association. And good morning to both of you, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Eunan McKinney, I I suppose... uh, not too many people will be that terribly surprised that officials in the Department of Finance are are looking at this with a degree of logic. It's a self-defeating policy. Well, they may be looking at it with a certain degree of logic, but they're certainly not looking at it from the point of view of evidence. Um, I mean, I I, I find this this whole story and the veracity of it is strange. like the, the Minister for Finance was on media yesterday uh, in response to this particular story, and he said there's no significant risk at the moment in relation to the reduction of taxes that, that they have outlined. Um, and indeed, you know, uh, the differential between 2019 and 2021 in terms of reduction in alcohol taxes collected is about 56 million as it stands. Now, obviously, 2021 is a somewhat unusual year because of COVID. But if the Department of Finance is so particularly concerned about a reduction Mm. in uh, alcohol taxes, 
they could end the relief that they afford the alcohol industry uh, on excise relief, which has cost the taxpayers forty two okay. million over, over the last ten years. All right, can we go back so to the? I just don't understand where where this particular. There's no evidence. All right, well, can we... In, in, the, in, the, in their paper, mm-hmm. in their paper, they offer no evidence. Okay, can we go back to the logic of what they're saying, though? Uh, and, well, the logic is working, and, but the uh, evidence, uh, where's the evidence? Well, if, if, if you'll allow me, I'd like to go back to the logic for a second, because I was speaking to somebody who lives in Carlingford, Mm-hmm. And sometimes they go to their local supermarket in Dundalk, and sometimes they go to their local supermarket mm-hmm. in Newry. Uh-huh. And they've been telling me that uh, exactly the same 50 centiliter bottle of Contro liquor uh, uh-huh. costs £13 in the north and €37 Euro in the south. Now, uh-huh. now logically... Where would you, where would you do your shopping if you wanted a bottle of that stuff? Oh, no question about. It. I mean, I, I we've had this discussion before. There's no doubt that there's an absolute price differential between north and south, and there always has been. And that is, you know, we've been over that in the past, where we know. Well, you'd be mad to shop in the south. That's the point. No, no, but hang on a second. The point is that there are people who have always shopped I've done cross-border shopping for a whole variety of reasons right. in relation to... Are you telling me that any of our listeners would shop in the South? Are you telling me that any of our listeners, because we're on the border and we're talking yeah. about exactly this part of the world, are you telling me that any of our listeners are stupid enough to pay €37 yeah. Euro when they could pay £13? Well, it's not, not a matter. I'm not making any, any comment on anybody's intelligence in relation to where or where they don't shop. What I'm saying is that the evidence in relation to this is that there is cross-border shopping, and that is determined by the CSO, and it is worth about four hundred and sixty million a year every year in terms of people moving from the south. Well, well, if you were watching, if you were watching your pennies, as a lot of people have to in this day and age with the rise in the cost of living, uh, of you, you you would come to the conclusion very easily and very quickly that you'd be stupid, plain stupid, well, to pay thirty-seven euro word. for something that you could get for thirteen pounds. That's your word. But the point about... No, no, but it... it, it, it well, it foolish, ridiculous. More? I mean... Is it, there more? Is there more people doing that? You'd, well, you'd, well, you'd have to have more money than sense, as the old phrase goes. I'm not going to get into determining how people determine what well, well, around pe- their shopping. Well, well, quite I'm often, quite often, people don't have the disposable income to make these decisions in any other way than to look for the cheapest product. Uh, Vincent Jennings, uh, uh, tell me uh, uh, what you're hearing uh, on the ground uh, from people selling alcohol on the border region. You've already had reports of a significant drop in, uh, in business. I understand. Good morning, Michael. Yes, there is, most certainly. And as has already been alluded, there has always been, and you would, would, would know it better than many, there's always been a lot of cross-border purchasing. But that's you know controlled by exchange rates and excise rates and various costs of business. But MUP, the minimum unit pricing, has added an additional element. And that additional element has most certainly tipped people over the edge. Because where people are buying their normal stuff in stores and the like, when it comes to alcohol, they are actually foregoing purchases that they'd previously made in the southern, in the close border stores, and they're travelling to Newry and to Strabane and to Derry and, mm. and the like. Is it people with drink problems who are doing that? No, of course not. No, sorry, well, sorry when I say of course not. Mm. There are people who, who, who drink alcohol, and they drink alcohol responsibly, and they're driving their cars to get those, and they're 
saving up for communions and confirmations mm. and all kinds of But things. is the alcohol that important that they travel these distances uh, to no, get cheap no, alcohol? No. Are, are they alcoholics, these people who go to the north, to get cheap alcohol? Uh, look, I, I suppose there are the same percentage as that there are within the community. People do mm. have problem drinking and people have used drink as a social uh, uh, lubricant. And they're perfectly entitled to do. Okay, well, I ask you, I ask you that because yeah. you, you kind of get that impression when you speak to Ewan McKinney. He'll oh, sure. probably correct me in a, a moment if he feels otherwise. But I, I do often think uh, he thinks that people don't need. It's. I mean, what's the difference in whether you save twenty euro a year or not? Because you don't only be buying one bottle of booze a year, uh, and if you're going up to buy more than one bottle, you have probably got a drink problem. Yeah, well, look, I mean, this is about minimum unit pricing and it's about the tax strategy group quite rightly pointing out that in addition to, uh, and whether, whether it is quantifiable by it being 100 million or 130 million or otherwise, they're right to bring it to the attention of the Department of Finance that in our observations, this is going to be an additional problem. And the Minister of Finance is quite correct that it isn't a, an, an, a massive risk, it isn't a huge risk, but it is, it is less money coming into Irish coffers it's more money going into Her Majesty's coffers. Mm. And it's less of a risk in Kerry, I take it, than it is in Dundalk. Yeah, it was completely foreseeable. It didn't have to be done. We should mm. have waited for the North to have done the self yeah. and do it at the same time. I'm not arguing, the Association has never argued about minimum unit pricing per se. What it had a problem with was we were promised one thing, mm. even in the programme for government and in the lead into this government, both Stephen Donnelly and frankly and both said most certainly mm. that they would be working towards Okay, but uh, t- talk to me about um, the pressure that this would put on local businesses here uh, along the border because I, I take it uh, that there's less concern about this in Kerry or Cork or Waterford than there would be along the border region uh, and that, that's probably why the Minister is not too worried about the tax take uh, but that doesn't take the pressure off local businesses and doesn't, put, uh, doesn't uh, end the situation that's putting their business a, a threat. Very much so. I mean, our business model effectively is, you know, that, that, that alcohol is part and parcel of the mix of the ranges within the store. And it depends upon the size of the store and the like, but it may well be contributing 11-12% to the bottom line. It may be just contributing a little bit more or a little bit less, depending on the size. But when you have, when, when you are working on wafer-thin margins, overall and you're coming out of the pandemic and your costs are rising all the time every little and using somebody else's phrase every little bit counts if you can't rely upon that contribution you're in real difficulty okay you and mckinney you wanted evidence uh, have you just been given it no again i'm sorry but you know in the context of anecdotal commentary which is undoubtedly entertaining but it is not evidence and indeed you know, Paddy Malone, who's the president or the PRO of the Dundalk Chamber, was on radio yesterday, um, and he said, similarly said that he had seen no evidence in relation to, no significant evidence in relation to what uh, uh, Vincent had outlined. And that's a man in Dundalk, so I'm taking his, taking his commentary as somewhat valid in so much that he is a direct influencer. Mm. Direct well, you've debated this issue with Paddy Malone on this programme, uh, and Paddy Malone has said it should have been done on an all-island basis, well, and you've, just, again, heard, again, you've uh, just heard of a significant again, drop uh, from a, a trade association. Its members are reporting a, a drop in business along the border. But that is not, that again, there is no evidence in relation to that, and in relation to what is the point of this discussion, which is what is the impact of minimum unit pricing, is it a driver of additional cross-border trade across 
across into okay. I see no evidence. Okay, Vincent. And I won't see any evidence. Vincent, are you making that up? Vincent, are you making that up? No, but I would look for perhaps you, Michael, to perhaps suggest to your reader, to your listener, yeah. that a quick five-minute poll and see how many of those people have, have made additional purchases since MUP in January. We don't have no, no business at this point in time has completed their, their accounts for a 12-month period. But most certainly you're going to have to accept from us that we are now selling much, much... Well, just, on, just on that point then, Mike mm. and Vincent, I mean, the, the most recent figures from Nielsen, which is the trade body in relation to collecting data, suggests that there is an 11% increase in alcohol sales in the off-trade in 2022. So, like, where are we, where are we getting all the, the idea that somehow another business is, is collapsing or okay. they've been somehow penalised? Vincent? Yeah, there's a massive difference between reported volume and reported value. And, and, and the costs that have risen accordingly, you know, mask those things. In a 12, over a 12-month period, you will most certainly see, most certainly see, that there's been a reduction in the units sold. I mean, your, your listeners will tell you that there are more people purchasing elsewhere than in the South. Okay, Vera is texting saying uh, the off-licence first and last in Jonesboro has queues of people there all of the time. I take it Vera is one of them. Mm. Well, that's, again, we've had that discussion yeah. before. There's undoubtedly people going across the border to purchase alcohol, which they have always done, the, the, the outstanding question has to be is there additional levels of alcohol been purchased? Okay, well, somebody else says I go to Newry every week. What I've noticed is that the people who cross the border to buy booze buy very large amounts to justify the cost of the fuel. Booze is much cheaper in Newry. Yeah, well, again, as we said, booze is much cheaper in, in Newry because of a difference in relation to a whole set of circumstances that are led by a checker things around VAT and around excise mm. duty, but also currency fluctuations. And that has always been the case. But is but that okay for is, is that for okay for somebody whose business it is to sell alcohol? Uh, because because that's a manufactured situation. That's a situation we've created intentionally. We've put business in the this jurisdiction at a disadvantage, at a huge disadvantage. No, because what we have we have always had that disadvantage. Is my point. And the, in the in the context of having different tax rates, having different VAT rates, and obviously having two different currencies. I mean, the very nature of cross-border shopping is that 60% of that is done by people who live within 30 kilometres of the border. I mean, we're not going to move those people and we're not going to change those people's lifestyles just because of one particular aspect of which we're now highlighting. And remember, in okay, the top figures, only 14% of the money that is spent let's, on let's put, let's, is actually spent on alcohol. Let's put that to Vincent Jennings. Uh, it sounds like uh, in uh, the... Uh, out of concern for the greater good, uh, we should sacrifice uh, the business of those who sell alcohol along the border. But that's not the well, case, Mike. There's nobody been sacrificed here at all. But the point I'm making in relation to that is that alcohol sales have increased by 11% this year in, in those businesses. Who's been sacrificed here? Mm-hmm. Nobody's been sacrificed. Well, I think that's a national figure, but anyway, Vincent Jennings? Well, yeah, of course it is, but I mean... <laughs> Vincent? Sorry, I think yeah. I'm Vincent Jennings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, uh, it's a situation, Michael, that, that we, have, we have the most resilient and stoic of, of retailers, and they have always managed to deal with cross-border trade. What we're speaking about specifically here, Michael, 
is about the, the, the additional costs and the additional pressures that MUP has put in whilst it is not in place in the north. Mm. We have no difficulty with it being there as long as it is there in the north as well. We'll put up with all the others, the VAT with differentials, the excise differential, the cost of business differential, all of those, the rates and everything like that. Mm. We, we, we put up with those on a daily basis, but this was an additional thing. It was, it was, it was a tough Okay, so, so, so go back to the example I, I gave at the start, and it's just one example, and you could go through every bottle of booze that there is on the shelves and find huge differences. But if we take that bottle of Contro, £13 in the north, 37 in the south. If they had minimum unit pricing in the north and that brought that up to 30 euro, the equivalent of 30 euro and it was 37 here, you'd be okay with that, Vincent, would you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I don't, th- I don't think it would go up that much actually in, in Northern Ireland because the race you know, hasn't been determined in Northern Ireland as of yet. But, um, you know, assuming the executive in Northern Ireland is be established in the autumn, minimum unit pricing will be introduced by the Minister for Health in, in, in Northern mm. Ireland. But the race could be, you know, it would need to be at 65 pence, uh, the, the race, okay. to have it comparable. But I think a bottle of, of Quantro, which I think is 40% ABV, would probably be, you know, 26 or 27 okay. pounds mm. in that context. You know, so there okay. would be still a significant... What about, what about a can of beer up the north then, um, Unan? Uh, it, it has to be two euro here, thereabouts. Um, what would no, it... no, no, no. No, no, no. It doesn't have to be. It in or around? 70. 170. Well, okay, 170. Yeah, uh, that's 15%. Well, people, people, used yeah. to pay, people used to pay a euro and less. Um, what, what, yeah. If they had minimum unit pricing up the north, um, how much would a can of beer be instead of 170? Off the top of my head, I don't, I don't know. Um, but would it be similar? In front of me. It would be relatively similar, yeah. It would be, yeah. Absolutely, it would be. Mm. Yeah. Well, that would, make, yeah. that, that, that would give uh, local business a, a good boost, would it not, Vincent? Of course it would. Of course it would. I mean, it's based upon the level of alcohol. It's based upon the volume. Sometimes the manufacturers, what has happened when, when MUP comes in, what, it, what they did in Scotland, in Wales and in Ireland, the manufacturers reduced the size of, you know, it's mm. inflation. They reduced it from 500 down to 440 uh, in a can. Um, and, and, and some people actually reduce the level of volume of, of alcohol to, to, to avoid it. But certainly, if you do a, if you do on a like-for-like basis, if you have MUP in the north of Ireland, we will return to the same level of differential as we were previously successfully mm. able to, to compete. And you're, you're not arguing against regulations, you're just looking for a, a level playing field. Absolutely. Mm. Is, is that not reasonable, Union? Oh, no, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I, I've been advocating, and indeed I've spent much of this year and last year working with people in Northern Ireland advocating for minimum unit pricing to be introduced in Northern Ireland. Mm. The difficulty is a political issue, and that is that, unfortunately, the executive is not in place. Mm. But were it to be in place, I have no doubt that minimum unit pricing will be introduced because okay. everybody, there's no political party opposed to it in Northern Ireland. Right. And the chief medical officer in Northern Ireland is absolutely in favour of it as well. So yeah, but it, it hasn't happened. Issue, it, it, it is a political issue, Michael. Mm. It's a political issue insofar as that it's not, it's not only in minimum unit pricing, it is in other areas of government control where the Northern Ireland executive and, and some branches of the executive refuse to have, and we see it with the deposit retention tax uh, about, uh, uh, or the return scheme 
for bottles and cans where they refuse adamantly to do anything alongside the, north, alongside the south because somehow or other it seems to be that there is a quasi-united environment of effort. The interesting point on that is that obviously Scotland uh, has minimum unit pricing and indeed it is moving to a point of renewing that in 2023 mm. and, wa- and Wales has minimum unit Well, we had that so, report in the Lancet, Northern didn't Ireland, we, that we talked about Northern that Ireland. said it, it was a self-defeating uh, policy in Scotland because the heaviest drinkers were drinking more uh, and there's also well, anecdotal evidence that people are turning to drugs because drink is becoming too expensive for them. Yeah, but again, but there's no, that is not true. What is the case is that there was a paper published recently that said 5% of the heaviest male drinkers mm. had no impact of it, minimum pricing. But they drank more. Of, no, no, hang on a second. That's 5% of a small, very small group of people. Yeah. The overall implication of minimum pricing in Scotland is that the latest figure is 6.2% mm. reduction in alcohol sales. Yeah. And in Wales, it's 7%. Mm. And that is the whole point of this. The whole point, notwithstanding our discussion this morning, I mean, the whole point of this endeavour is to reduce alcohol use across the whole of population. Mm. And you know, it, it, there is absolute evidence that minimum unit okay. can contribute to that. All right, well, okay, somebody else uh, telling us a can of beer in Uri is 55 pence sterling. Uh, we're getting a, a lot of texts. We let our, our listeners uh, who live here uh, tell us if they are going north or not. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll hear from them uh, throughout the day. But thank you both uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, Una McKinney, Head of Communications with Alcohol Action Ireland, suggesting that there's no evidence that the government is collecting less tax because of people going across the border to buy alcohol. Vincent Jennings, the CEO of uh, the Convenience Stores and Newspapers Association, the CSNA, saying he's hearing from his members that business, that alcohol sales is down as much as 20 percent in some places Uh, are you shopping elsewhere or are you buying your alcohol if you drink are you buying your alcohol in the same place that you always bought it or what's the situation perhaps you'd be good enough to let us know today we'd love to hear from you Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, I suppose, truth be told, a few people have uh, told us uh, about the price of beer and uh, other things, wine and uh, spirits uh, north of the border, but not too many people in touch. Maybe Una uh, McKinney is right. Maybe people aren't going north of the border for the bargains. Uh, maybe they are. I'm not sure uh, if uh, you just haven't got around to telling us yet, but we are looking to know if you've changed how you shop for alcohol since the introduction of minimum unit pricing. In other words, are you going to Northern Ireland to buy your alcohol? Uh, we want to know where you're buying your alcohol. We also want to know why you're, where you're buying your cigarettes today as well. Uh, cigarettes and alcohol, kind of uh, the theme on the programme uh, today. Did you buy uh, some Flandria, Virginia uh, tobacco off someone on a street corner recently? Uh, we know that uh, Revenue and Gardaí seized two and a half thousand kilos of this tobacco in County Meath this week, said to be worth 1.7 million euro. That's a retail value uh, and a loss to the exchequer of 1.4 million euro. Let's speak to Benny Gilsonen, who's uh, the national spokesperson for retailers against smuggling. Good morning to you, Benny, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme today. Uh, they say uh, that was worth 1.7 million euro. 
uh, if it was to be sold over the counter legally in the shops. Uh, how much do you think that they'd be selling it on the streets? Well, I, I, I'm quite sure, Michael, that it's not it's not 20 euro anyway. Right, it's 20 for a packet of, of uh, tobacco would be 20 euro, is it? 20, 20 euro for a packet of, a little over 20. Right. For a packet, packet of Golden Virginia, you know, this is, this is a brand fanfare Virginia, so it's a, it's a it's obviously disguised as uh, Golden Virginia tobacco. Right. Uh, and that's in the shops, 20 euro. How much would a packet of uh, Roly tobacco be on the streets? Well, general, generally it's running from, from uh, €4.50 Euro to €8 Euro on the streets, Michael, which what? would be le- less than half the price. €4? Euro. Yeah. You know, t- up to up to eight fifty. The max, the max, maximum price I have heard have been sold that was €8.50. Euro you know, and like, alongside that, uh, only last week we had, you know, a consignment of Rockman cigarettes found in County Mead also. Mm. You know, which, which uh, indicates that, uh, you know, it's... They're not only using Dublin as the marketplace, that they're going outside it, uh, you know, to supply people outside of the city. Okay. Um, I was going to ask you how they managed to sell it for four euro, but I'm just looking at the figures here, and I, I take it it's because they don't pay tax. Uh, I, I mean, there's very little left out of the 1.7 million after you sell all of this tobacco over the counter because the government takes 1.4 million. That's correct. That's correct. You know, as I have said to you before, Michael, on numerous occasions, uh, 87.9% of the cost of the packet of cigarettes that the purchaser pays goes to the state. So, like, in in this situation, the state is getting nothing whatsoever. So the, the, the criminal is laughing all the time he's selling. And the, the people who are buying uh, and selling for the criminals wind up like making, you know, probably peanuts as well because the criminal will demand his slice of the cake at all times. Hmm. Um, was that a lot of tobacco in terms of what's sold across the country? Um, would that make a bust of that size? It sounds an awful lot, but would that make a, a big difference to the illegal trade? Well, it's. It, it, any, any burst makes a difference to the illegal trade, Michael, you know, regardless of size, you know, like a bust of 100,000 uh, euros worth of uh, cigarettes or tobacco is a sizable amount. You know, like when you look at like a 1.7 million worth, it's 1.7 million is not something that you, you walk into a bank and you say, can I have 1.7 million? I need it worth to buy tobacco. <laughs> you know, these, these guys, know, it, yeah. tells you, yeah. it tells you the kind of money that mm. these people are making and that these people are playing with. You know, like it's not it's not the ordinary Joe Soap that's yeah. involved in this. It has to be big, big, big time criminals. Yeah, well, if they sold it, let's say, for 500,000, maybe they uh, paid 200,000 for it. Um, it's just that that's the difference between uh, the price of it when uh, you add on the tax uh, and uh, you don't have to pay tax. Yes. Yes, yes, definitely. But like, it still comes back down to the fact that those people who are buying this uh, are, are, don't know what they're buying, number one. Mm. And all they're doing is supporting criminality in the end of the day. You know, yeah, we'll have people come on and say, oh, no, I'll buy it because it's cheap tobacco, or I'll mm. buy it because I'm not paying the state, you know, X amount of money in taxes. Mm. But they're not taking into consideration that they are supporting the big time criminals of this country and abroad. Yeah, and I think many people probably do take that on board, but they don't have any choice because tobacco uh, is uh, an awful addiction. 
And if you need your hit, uh, you need to get the drug, the tobacco. Uh, and if you can't afford it, uh, well, you're going to go where you can afford it. Well, yes, Michael, you know, I can understand what you're saying and where you're coming from, but we can, the very same applies to the hard drugs. You know, these people are, are supporting... But, 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 tobacco, tobacco, but tobacco is one of the hardest drugs of all. Well, it, it is. It's a drug. It is a drug. We've never said it wasn't. Mm. We've never said well, it wasn't. Heard, I, I, I've heard it was more addictive than heroin. Well, that I don't know. I've never tried either of them, Michael, mm. so I can't tell you whether they are or not. Mm. But the point I would make is that like, if you're buying them on the street and you, mm. as against buying them on a legitimate source, yep. you are for supporting criminality. And when you support criminality, you're supporting the people who are going around the country robbing and breaking into people's premises and stealing their, their goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, uh, there's plenty of people uh, who consciously do that and buy drugs, uh, and that includes tobacco, and I suppose that's a, a decision that they make. Uh, the Guardian Revenue say that investigations are going into that bus this week, this uh, 1.7 million euro haul that they discovered in a warehouse. So this was obviously a, a very professional operation. Obviously, Michael, you know, like, you know, it's not that long ago either since we had the factory uh, where they were working 24-7, they were producing 250,000 cigarettes an hour, you know, in Jenkinstown. Mm. And, uh, like, I haven't seen anybody being brought to court yet for that. Maybe there has, but... You know, it was working on a 24-7 basis. So like, we, we still have similar situations going on today, uh, albeit that it looked as if this was product that was brought in from abroad. Mm, from the still, Netherlands, apparently, loose wasn't tobacco, it? Raw loose tobacco found mm. in bales coming into this country. Mm. Yeah, uh, how, how do you get uh, so much tobacco uh, into the country? Uh, this apparently was shipped in from the ne- Netherlands. Yes, that's that is the that is the the, the 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 end of the problem, like as to how and who is prepared to run the risk of losing their transport, uh, their lorry, and face prosecution for bringing product of that nature in. But again, it comes down to what I said: these mm. people are not one bit concerned. They have so much money to throw away that if they lose one loot, they'll get in five behind it. Mm. Uh, David was in touch with us. I don't know if you can answer this, Benny. He wants to know how many cigarettes you'd get out of a, a pack of Roly tobacco. Uh, that I don't know, mm. Michael, how many they would get. But uh, they estimate that the average packet of Roly Roan tobacco is equivalent to around in or around uh, 60 to 100 pack cigarettes, depending on how much tobacco you put in. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I've known people who would have smoked 20 a day, let's say, and a packet of tobacco would have lasted them the week. Yeah, that's correct, simply because of the fact that, that uh, it's much more awkward to take out the packet of tobacco and roll up your own cigarette and... Uh, as against opening a packet and taking the cigarette out. Okay. You know, like, you know, it takes a little while to roll the pa- roll the cigarette, and on top of that, you do not have the same size packed cigarette when you roll it in general. Okay. Well, 
Uh, I suppose uh, people can make the decision uh, of uh, doing the right thing if uh, they're tobacco smokers and buying them over the counter and paying the tax on them or they can buy them off uh, the criminals or from somebody who's got them off uh, the criminals on a a street corner for four euro or at work or wherever it is that they buy their tobacco. Benny, thank you indeed as always for joining us on the programme today. Benny Gilson is a national spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Murku had loads of questions about water in Dundalk on the programme yesterday. And after the programme, Irish Water gave us loads of answers about the water in Dundalk. And we'll bring you many of those answers on the programme, we hope, on Monday. But there is some important information for you that we we'll give to you now, which is that they say that uh, Irish Water is fully compliant. And they tell us that the manganese levels that are found in the water now are not at a level that will pose a risk to your health but they are continuing with measures to decrease the levels of manganese Uh, and they say if that situation changes and there is a risk to public health they'll notify everybody immediately and they say that if you have discoloured water coming from your cold kitchen tap the advice to you is to run the tap for a few minutes to restore it to a clear colour. If the colour does not restore to clear your advice not to drink the water but just as a precaution uh, they're not particularly worried at the moment they say that it shouldn't pose any risk to public health but as a precaution don't drink your water if the water coming out of your cold tap is not clear in Dundalk or elsewhere I take it but there's a a specific problem there as I say we'll give you uh, more detail on all of that uh, on Monday's programme but uh, let's get to some of the comments that are coming to us today Mairead Andrade says she knows uh, a good few people who go to the north to buy their booze because it's much cheaper even with a rising cost of fuel, they find it cheaper. Obviously, local businesses are going to lose out. A ridiculous move to put the price up here. People who drink heavily will still drink heavily. It just penalises those of us who enjoy a few drinks at home, maybe once a week. Thank you, Mairead, uh, for that. Uh, another comment uh, that has come to us uh, about alcohol from Tom in Dundalk, who says, No thought was given to businesses along the border when they decided to increase the price of alcohol here. People who drink will always drink. They'll just travel to get the best value. But this will have a major impact on off licences here. Thank you as well, Tom, for that. Somebody else says, I go over the border, you can get a litre of spirits and 24 cans of beer for €45. It's a no-brainer. Not sure who sent that WhatsApp message, but thanks for doing it. Somebody else, Olivia Andrada, has also been WhatsApping us, and she says, Hi, Michael, when we have a get-together, we go to Tesco and Uri. It's much cheaper. Uh, We don't need cigarettes, but if I'm away, I'll always bring home duty-free. Last week in Tenerife, we got 400 cigarettes for €60, euro, a top brand. We could have got a lot more. No hassle coming through, Custom says Olivia. Thank you, Olivia, for that. I think, um, if I remember correctly, because we did a lot of stuff on this years ago, you're allowed up to 3,000 cigarettes. Um, but uh, don't quote me on that, whatever you do. Um, I, I have a friend that travels up from Dublin to buy his wine in a supermarket in the north, says another listener who's also WhatsApping us, and tells us that his friend buys three boxes uh, of wine uh, I take it uh, at a, a time where the same bottles is 10 euro in Dublin in the same supermarket where it works out at 7 euro a bottle uh, uh, up the north he goes every three or four weeks and he stays with family when he's up from Dublin as he says it's only 13 miles out of his way and it's worth it uh, because of the amount of money he saves 
somebody else. This is Ellen, actually. Thanks, Ellen, for uh, texting uh, again today. She says, Michael, I go north once a week, or once a month, I'm sorry. Once a month I go north. I do my shopping. It's much cheaper. And I bring back drink for friends. And what's more, you get three hours free parking. Thank you indeed, Ellen. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's recap on uh, the story about a review into our Ladies' Hospital Emergency Department in Navan. Uh, four weeks ago, uh, we were told by the Department of Health that this review had begun. Then the HSE told us that the review hadn't begun, but it was to commence the week of the 25th of July. We asked and we asked repeatedly to see the terms of reference into this review. Those requests were never responded to. And just to explain to you what the terms of reference are, I keep saying it's kind of like the job spec, uh, but it it gives you an insight into what the review team are actually going to do. In other words, they might be asked to look at the situation in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda and what needs to be done there to make it safe to bring patients over from Navan. Or they might be asked to look at the situation in Navan uh, to see what needs to be done there uh, if they need to uh, recruit additional staff or bring in some sort of protocol that some section or cohort of patients wouldn't be seen in Navan or something like that or a mixture of the whole lot. And then we'd be able to look at the terms of reference and tell you what the plans are. Uh, but we haven't been able to see the terms of reference. Uh, we, we we never got a response when we asked to see uh, the terms of reference. And likewise, uh, we've been ignored. And I mean, we've been ignored by the Department of Health, the Minister for Health and the HSE uh, when we asked to see the terms of reference, but also when we asked who was heading up this review. Uh, who's doing it? Uh, and what criteria was used for selecting the review team? Then, last Friday, Minister Helen McEntee told us she expected these terms of reference to be published sometime said, this week. Been, and as I said, I have been told by the department that it will be published next week. So obviously do, we, we will do, all be able to see do, the finalised terms. And do, do, again, do you I'm know told when? this will be completed by September. Do you know when next week it will be published, Minister? I, I don't, but okay. I, again, if I can get more detail, but what I've okay. been told is that they will, uh, be, they is, will be published next week and available. As I said, I haven't seen the finalised terms, but is, I, I, I fully accept that. Is, is the review underway? Uh, yes, so my understanding is that uh, work has started on us, yes. But two weeks underway? I, I don't have the exact time frame of, of well, when we were it told started, We were told it would start two weeks ago, uh, and uh, it, it seems peculiar. Does it seem, is it, is it peculiar that uh, work on a review is underway without the terms of reference for that uh, review being agreed? Well, I, I don't know whether it's preliminary work or not, but I have been told. So again, I can only go by what I've been told. I've been told. No, but we were told the started. review. We were told the review is underway. Uh, do the reviewers know what they're reviewing? Uh, because they don't know what the task is if they don't have the terms of reference. If they have the terms of reference, what is the delay being in publishing the terms of reference? So, uh, unfortunately, Michael, I can only respond to the information that I have, um, and the information that I have is that work has started so whether it's preliminary work whether it's everything together whether it's everybody in the the who's part of the review starting i i don't know that's minister helen McEntee speaking to us last friday 
telling us uh, that she'd been told by the Department of Health that the terms of reference would be published sometime this week. And as you heard the minister say, she didn't know whether that would be Monday or Friday today or some day in between. Uh, so yesterday, coming to the end of uh, the week, we uh, thought we'd ask uh, and see if we could get any information uh, about what's happening, presuming that the terms of reference would be published today. We asked the Department of Health, or I beg your pardon, we asked the HSE, um, when will the terms of reference uh, be published? And the HSE told us that we needed to redirect our query to the Ireland East Hospital Group. So we asked the Ireland East Hospital Group and they said, well, you need to ask the HSE um, because it hadn't really got anything to do with them. Uh, they said they could only respond to questions directly about the hospital or questions that related directly to the hospital. The hospital is not in charge of the review being undertaken. That That's uh, part of uh, work that's been done by the HSE. Uh, it's carried out by the HSE, who's governance over uh, this issue, uh, and then we should be asking the HSE. So we asked the HSE. Uh, and uh, we also asked uh, some other people. Incidentally, the Ireland East Hospital Group uh, said that they'd try and get some answers for us and we also spoke to the Finnegale spokesperson on health and, and they, they said that they uh, tried to get some answers for us. Let's speak uh, to Nick Killian who's uh, the career luck of Meath County Council and uh, a very good morning to you Nick and uh, thank good you morning, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, after being sent around the houses over the last 24 hours um, we finally got a, a response uh, which came in to us uh, this morning uh, and it says the ter- It's that time of the year your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Terms of reference are expected to be published shortly. Well, this is a farce, Michael, and fair play to yourself and your team for the amount of work and research that you've put into trying to get answers. I mean, this just shows how the people of Meath are actually being treated. And this, I come back to what, it's only 10 days ago since we spoke, Michael, on this, and we haven't moved on. Um, I, I just note in, the, in, in a quote in, in the Irish Times, uh, when they sought uh, queries this week, um, we are, they are nearly there. So whatever that means, it's very obvious listening to Helen and Helen is a, a senior politician in government 
um, that she's been given the runaround. So at the end of the day, I come back to what I said before. There's one person in charge here, the minister. He's got an AWOL. There's no sign of him. Paul Reid um, is obviously ducking and diving. So I'm calling this morning now through your programme, and I know you've done it yourselves, on behalf of the people of County Meads, uh, of which I am, Cahirlock, um, to immediately publish the terms of reference. It can't be that difficult. You outlined the, the parameters very clearly there in the beginning of the, of the top of the show. There has to be a chairperson for this. Who is the chairperson? What, what are the parameters of the actual review? How is it going to take place? And what has it been benchmarked against? So from our perspective, um, they're very simple questions. The reviews happen every day of the week. We've all been involved in reviews for this, that and the other. So it doesn't take a, a, a mighty civil servant to sit down in uh, the Department of Health to write these terms of reference or in the HSE up in, uh, where they are up near Houston Station. I mean, it, it feels like a bit like Houston Station. They're giving us the runaround right around the country. And that's, what's, that's what they're doing. This is so unfair to the staff of the hospital as well. And, and I noticed that the, the concerns expressed by the uh, SIP2 representative during the week as well. It's not fair. It's not fair to the staff. It's not fair to the people who use the hospital on a daily basis. And it's not fair to the people of County Meath. We're running around like headless chickens. OK. Um, a review has been underway over the course of the last three weeks. Well, who's doing it? What, 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 How can what, you do a review without terms of reference? What are they doing? I don't know, Michael. You don't know. Helen McEntee doesn't know. Well, if a so, review, but if a review has been taking place over the last three weeks, surely somebody is doing it, and sure, and surely whoever is doing it knows what they are doing. Doing. So, so, so why they, can't they've spoken to? Why, why done but, the review? But, but, but if the review is taking place, somebody must be carrying out the review, and they must know what they are doing. And if that is the case, why can't the people of Meath be told? Well, that's the that's a, a million dollar dollar question at this stage. Why are the people of Meath not being told? Why are the doctors in the hospital not being told? Why are the nursing staff? Why are the ancillary staff who work hard every day in the hospital? What are they being asked in this review? Nobody has been asked any questions yet, as far as I can see uh, from uh, what I, I'm, I'm reading in the paper and listening to your show. Nobody has been asked any questions. So is this just a group of um, headless, faceless civil servants at the head of the HSE talking to each other in a room? And I hope if they're in a room today that the, 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 that they sweat and, and realise that they have to talk to somebody because we're sweating, waiting on the information. But maybe, but maybe. Uh, that's a very interesting point that they have to talk to somebody. I, I'd imagine they're, 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 they're all very decent people. Uh, any, sure uh, 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 any of the staff in the HSE that I've ever had uh, any interaction with have been very decent and uh, hard-working public servants. Uh, and I'm sure they know that they should be talking to people, but there's a question about that. Uh, have they been told not to speak to people because we have a, a Minister for Health. Now, I want to ask you about the Minister for Health. I want to try and put in, this into some perspective as well. Uh, because Stephen Donnelly is the, 
the Minister for Health. Stephen Donnelly put a gagging order on the HSE in June. Stephen Donnelly has not met, uh, has not even responded to you as the Caerlocker no. of Meath County Council no. to, to meet with you and members of the County Council across party group of councillors uh, to discuss this issue. He's not even had the, the, the courtesy to respond to you. Stephen Donnelly has not given any interviews to local media uh, about this issue. Stephen Donnelly has not responded to questions through his uh, media team, through his spokesperson, through his helpers, uh, through his officials. Uh, he has not responded to any of the questions really that has come from media uh, about the situation. There is a, a, a very strong suspicion uh, on the part of this reporter that Stephen Donnelly has put another gagging order on the HSE because it is very untypical the way they have gone to ground. And we have now got a situation where we have no sense with a review that has been going on for three weeks that has been carried out by someone who does who must know what they are doing but nobody can tell us anything about it. Do you believe Stephen Donnelly is fit for the job? No. Absolutely not. I think he has demonstrated that right throughout the uh, since be, being appointed as Minister of Health. He has created many difficult situations for the health service and for those, look at the, the state of the health service at the present time, the waiting lists in hospitals. Even the very fact that we're talking today about NAVM and the proposals that people are putting forward. What has been done in, in uh, Drogheda in the, in the meantime, uh, if they were talking about closing the A&E, which we don't want, how many, they, they are overloaded. I spoke to, to uh, an ambulance person at a, a function there uh, recently, and they are run off their feet, the ambulance people. There isn't enough people there even to cater for the uh, amount of ambulance calls that are, are being sent out. And we're then being told to be dependent then on Drogheda. So there's many, many people unhappy, hmm. and that's under the leadership or supposed leadership of Minister Donnelly. Okay. I don't know the man from Adam. I've never met him. I've never had that pleasure. So, and and I'm sorry to be so critical of a man I've I've never met. Okay, stay with me, Nick. Uh, leadership. Stay with me, Nick. If you would, uh, we asked you to speak to us today in the neutral role uh, that is uh, the Cahirlik. Uh, 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 and uh, you're representing uh, this cross-party group that wanted to meet with the Minister uh, and that request was not responded to. But we've also asked today uh, the councillors across all of uh, the parties and uh, none in County Mead uh, to speak, in Navin uh, to speak to us yeah. uh, today. Uh, let's uh, hear from Aintu councillor now, Emer Tobin, who's also on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. What are your thoughts on this ongoing saga? Well, I suppose it, it really beggars belief. We've, we've had a summer of non-communication, a summer of if we don't like your questions, we're just going to ignore them. A bit like what Councillor Killian said there, I commend LMFM to, to chase up all these questions, to campaign, to get the information. But really and truly, it shouldn't be the job of a radio station to be chasing up with Ireland's hospital group. It shouldn't be your job to be ringing and putting emails through to get this information. These people are elected uh, public representatives. The fact that they do not think we deserve to get answers to these questions just shows that something has gone very, very wrong in how they view their job. Because, as I said, public servants are there to serve the public. And the least they should do with the levels of anxiety among so many people that live in Mead they should answer the questions and put people's worries to bed. Okay, it would seem as though there's a kind of contemptuous attitude towards questions that are, are put 
to the HSE and the Department of Health from media, at least, from this particular media outlet, uh, at least. Uh, and that includes the last response that we got, that one line that the terms of reference will be published shortly. Uh, there's no detail in that. It's not saying today or they were meant to be today or this week and it should be you know, a li- little bit of padding on it or something to, to show a, a bit of respect for the people who are listening to the program. But, but at the same time, I don't think it's fair to say that that's the fault of the public officials when we don't know if it's the fault of the public officials because we do know that the public officials were told in June not to speak to the community. Well, I would disagree, Michael, from the point of view that Stephen... But by the minister, by the minister, who's a politician. The stops with him. Yes, but that's what I'm saying. The The minister told the public officials in June not to communicate with the local community. Yes, totally, totally out of out of kilter with what he should be doing. At the end of the day, he has a duty to tell people what is going on, especially on a subject as important as this. The bottom line is the people in need have, very, have made it very, very clear what is needed here. The 23 consultants in Drogheda Hospital have, have made it very, very clear that A&E in Navan needs to stay open. Mullingar A&E, Matter A&E, Conley A&E and Drogheda A&E have all come out this summer and all have requested the public not to attend their A&E services because they were already so overrun. As I said, this is the summer. It's not the winter. We know things are going to get a lot tighter and a lot busier in the winter. So the government, the HSC, the Ireland East Hospital Group, they have to listen to what the medics on the ground are saying. There is not enough capacity. There, it is absolutely foolhardy hardy, and reckless to remove capacity from the system because we cannot afford to to go without it. Okay, I have to take a break. Stay with me. We'll come back with more on this in just a couple of minutes' time. Michael Reed on LMFM. So when it comes to the future of the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Avon, we know that it's under review, or at least we've been told it's under review. Um, We don't know what they're reviewing or how they're reviewing it, and we don't know who they are. Who is it that's doing this review? A review uh, of the situation got underway two weeks ago. We don't know who's carrying out the review uh, and the terms of reference which spell out what that review is to do have not been uh, agreed and will not be published until next week, possibly uh, two, three weeks after the work is supposed to have begun by people uh, who are, are, have not been named. Uh, it is an incredible situation given that 7,000 people were out in the streets of Navin uh, asking for uh, the government to listen to them. Well, in terms of who's carrying out the review, this will be, I suppose, at a senior level within either the HSE and the Department of Health officials, obviously working with either a secretariat or a team to help them. So, you know, whether we're given official names for us I haven't been given those names uh, and I will certainly ask exactly who those people are. That's the Minister for uh, for Justice, Helen McEntee, speaking to us uh, last Friday. Independent councillor in Navin, Alan Laws is on the line. Alan, um, can you make any sense of this at all? No, well, after your introduction there, Michael, I was flabbergasted uh, to listen to the roundabouts you were put around and ignored by the department, by the minister, by the HSE, when you're asking simple, straightforward questions. And I'm a bit disappointed in, in, in Minister McAtee in the sense that she seemed to accept what she was being told, which in reality was really nothing. The review was underway for two weeks. I, I'm so very surprised that a minister at her level would not have asked 
what the terms of reference was about that view at that time, whoever she was talking to. Well, now, she said she had seen draft terms of reference. I take it, and this uh, goes back uh, to the point that we were making last week, that at that stage there hadn't been agreed. And if there hadn't been agreed, how did the work start uh, if you hadn't agreed yeah. the terms of reference? Exactly. I mean, it was confirmed that you were just saying on your show a moment ago. It was confirmed by Dr. McEntee at a meeting with, with the, all the councillors that uh, he told us at that meeting that he had a gagging order on him. So we know that to be a fact. And it looks like that the same thing has happened again. But the people I'm concerned about carrying out this review, I mean, you look at the, you know, Paul Reid at HSE, when you look at Minister Donnelly himself, and even their three government TDs and Dr. McEntee, they will never have to wait 12 hours in a draw to A&E, Michael. They probably have private health insurance where they're able to walk into a private A&E mm. and be seen straight away. They'll never have to be worrying about dying on a waiting list because the waiting lists are totally out of control. Yeah. They'll never have to worry about that. And they're the people that's making the decisions. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe that's right. Maybe it's not right. Uh, but I, I, I don't think, in fairness, it's feeding into their thinking. And I think they're all trying to resist the HSE's recommendation to close the emergency department. But what is of particular worry, I think, is that a minister, a government minister, somebody who sits at the cabinet table is not given all of the information. I I have no doubt in my mind uh, whether you uh, agree or anybody else listening agrees or disagrees. I honestly believe, and I'm only speaking personally uh, and everybody's entitled to their opinion on this, but my opinion on it is is that Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice, told us everything she knew on the programme last week and and I honestly believe that to be the case. Uh, But if the minister wasn't given the information about her local hospital by a cabinet colleague, by another government minister. I think that beggars belief. Well, it is extraordinary, Michael, and it does beggars, beggars belief. And it maybe goes back to the the relationship that maybe forced uh, Paul Reid to resign. Is there something going on behind the scenes that myself or yourself really don't know? Is there political infighting behind the scenes? Are our three TDs and our senator standing up for to keep uh, our ladies open and there's a political fight going on behind the scenes that we know nothing about. Mm. It's all we can there's, take for it is that, like, like um, all of us as political representatives, uh, our emails, our phone calls, we have people turning up asking us what's going to happen and campaigning mm. for the hospital to stay open. I'd imagine their constituency offices have been inundated mm. with members of the public and they probably, after your show today, mm. they'll be inundated again because mm. we don't know where we're going yeah, here. So, and, yeah. it's, and it's weeks and weeks and mm. weeks that we have a broadcaster mm. in the local area trying to find out very, very relevant, very important information here being ignored. That's extraordinary in itself, mm. Michael. Okay. Uh, it is a little bit embarrassing, is it not, Nick Killian? The whole thing is embarrassing. It's embarrassing from the perspective of the hospital itself. It's embarrassing from the people who work there. It's embarrassing for us as politicians that we can't get answers, um, which we are meant to do as politicians. That's mm. part of our job. We're not getting them. Mm. Uh, senior ministers are not getting them. I think there's been a mis- so, I think there's been a miscalculation, by the way, somewhere that somebody thought we wouldn't stand up and say we couldn't get the information. I mean, I would like to know from within the political parties themselves mm. what what luck they're having. And if if, if, yeah. if my local colleagues uh, on Mead County Council are not getting answers, well, yeah. it's, it's, well it's, it's, that's not good. As I, as I said, 
as I said, we, we, we've asked the local councillors in Navan uh, across the various parties to speak to us. We can speak to a Fine Gael councillor now, Yemi Adenuga. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, do you think good this morning, is, Michael. Good morning to you. Do you think this is uh, embarrassing? This, um, this, this, this approach, this attitude that... Uh, you're you're not you know what do you want to know this for uh, this seems to be the attitude that it's none of your business well Michael um, first off um, I just want to say well done to yourself and the team um, at the station for persistently consistently asking for answers on behalf of the people of Meath well that shouldn't have been your job to do um, but it, 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 I tell you I'm still gobsmacked and completely gobsmacked that we're not getting answers at all. From my experience as a people development strategist, what happens when you're asking for answers from a person and you're not getting answers, it simply means that they don't have answers. Look, what this says to me is even the thought of downgrading Navan Hospital in the first place wasn't properly thought out. And now everything has been exposed. If you think back to the very beginning, we had uh, the talk at the time that even the, the staff of HSC, all the senior staff and all of them, when this conversation was initially bring, being brought to the table, they weren't aware. They didn't have details. The doctors said they didn't have details. Nurses said they didn't have details at the time. And months and months down the line, it's still the same thing. So now this terms of reference mm. is to happen. It's not published. Who is heading it? We don't know. Mm. I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the, 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 uh, the criteria mm. for it? We don't know. Mm. Who is in the review team? We have no idea. That simply says one thing. The doctors in Drogheda, by the way, just to reinforce the point you were making, the doctors in Drogheda say that the first consultation that they had about this was on the 13th of June. Absolutely. Absolutely. This simply says one thing. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. And it's it's so shocking that again and again, meat is being put at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of services. What do you think? What do you think of the Minister for Health? By the way, um, I, I I don't know if you uh, agree, but I, I think he, he's put um, senior member of Fine Gael, the Minister for Justice, in a pretty embarrassing situation. It's quite embarrassing, Michael. And you know, personally, I don't know him. Um, personally, I've not had an engagement with him. But let's talk about the position of the Minister for Health. This is a huge responsibility to the people of this country. First thing, you have to have answers for the people. We're talking about life and death, and it is the life of the people of Meath. These lives are on the line. When questions are asked, ask the minister, if you don't have the direct answer, you speak to the relevant people and you bring the answers to the people. So I'm quite shocked, first of all, that we don't get answers from our own minister the minister represents the people. And if we're not getting answers, then it begs the question, is the person on the seat fit for this, for this, for this position? Why is do there... You want to an- do, you want, do you want to answer that question? Myself? Mm-hmm. Well, with the services, that with, with what we're hearing currently and what is going on currently, I'm not very sure. I'm not convinced. Okay. I'm not convinced at all because we're not hearing anything. 
unfortunately, after the cry out from the people of me was when the thought of a review is happening. So it means that the voices of the people matter. Now that they're talking about doing the review, why and what's the secrecy? Why all the hush hush? What okay. is there a secret thing? Is somebody benefiting from the quiet, <laughs> the quiet thing that we're, we're getting now? Well, Why you know, we I, I don't know. I'm very suspicious that it's a story that's being managed. Uh, I've been working uh, in Irish current affairs for over 20 years, and uh, I've never come across a, a situation like this uh, where it's. Uh, would be easier to pull hen's teeth than get information on something as simple and straightforward uh, as terms for re- of reference for a review that allegedly started three weeks ago. I- I'm over time. Yeah, I'm Michael, gonna. I'm, I'm go- Michael, maybe maybe just to mm. finish off on this. Yeah. Mm. The question is: Have they actually set a time of, a term of reference? Mm. Yeah, have I, I, set one. Yeah. If they have set one, it shouldn't be so hard yeah. to review yeah. it. I, I think that's it. Uh, Yemi, thank you. Um, I, I'm just going to conclude uh, with Cahirlik. Uh, again, I'll ask you to be neutral in the role as Cahirlik, Nick Killian, uh, and uh, maybe you want to conclude um, by uh, speaking to the Minister directly or to the HSE directly. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure what else I can ask you to do at this stage. Can I appeal? Yeah. Um, with your permission, can I appeal directly to Paul Reid, um, the head of the HSE, and to Minister Donnelly, that somebody from their office, who is obviously monitoring and listening to radio shows, and will be listening to LMFM this morning, to go to them and just ask them, would you please just uh, publish the terms of reference for the review for Navin Hospital? Pure and simple, please do that and try and do it within the next week. That's all we ask. And I'm asking that on behalf of the people of County Meath uh, right across the board from north, south, east and west. And can I just say, uh, finally, you know, radio is about public service and what you're doing is public service, Michael. And while at times we might always haven't agreed, this is great what you're doing and keep doing it because if you can't, you, 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 you're nearly our voice at this stage. So well done on what you're doing and to your team. But we've got to keep the pressure on through your own programme, through, through uh, other local media and through all our politicians right across the parties because I think we're all speaking out of the one page. Okay, thank you indeed. We'll, we'll leave it there for the moment. The Department of Health has said that the terms of reference will be published shortly. Thank you indeed uh, to the Cahirlik of Meath County Council, Nick Killian. We were also speaking with Fine Gael Councillor Yemi Adenuga, Independent Councillor Alan Laws and AIM2 Councillor Emer Tobin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there's many people, as we've been hearing, who are struggling to cover the cost of heat, electricity and indeed food. What can be done about it? Well, Bernardo's has a very interesting suggestion. Let's speak to Stephen Moffat, who's the National Policy Manager with Bernardo's. And a very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, You've suggested that the government allocate money, especially for this purpose, to help people who are struggling with uh, these bills in the upcoming budget. Yeah, so thanks so much for having me on. Um, we appreciate that you know that the, there are measures and mechanisms out there to ha- help families who are struggling uh, through a, an additional payments means. But unfortunately, often that takes uh, takes families you know five, six, seven days to hear whether or not they're successful for an application. And 
over that period of time, families are going without, children are going without, and we're really concerned about the length of time children will go without those essentials that you've mentioned. So we're recommending that the government's uh, in response to this crisis has a, has a crisis response uh, for families this winter where they can go into social welfare uh, or social uh, welfare office and are able to come out immediately with a, an essential needs payment uh, to, to make sure they can keep the lights on, they can keep food in the fridge, uh, and they can keep the heating on this winter. Is it really that desperate uh, for a, a quantifiable amount of people? Yeah, well, we, we certainly would think so. We know that the cost of living is, is having an impact uh, across all families. But the families who were might have been struggling prior to cost, uh, cost of living increases, the families who were just about making ends meet or were, were struggling week in, week out, those families now, they can't cut back any further. You know, they... When they, the more they're cutting back now, it means that they're having to choose between heating and choosing uh, between heating and lighting. Mm. You know, it's families who would be telling us, uh, you know, last say February and March when when it was still cold that they were having to uh, put children to bed with coats on, who were having to eat tin food. In terms of quantifiable numbers, um, you know, we wouldn't have an exact percentage to hand. But we know that it would be a sizable number, you know, certainly around the families that we, we support. It's a, it's a very high proportion of those families. Mm. And uh, you published research earlier in the year, of course, that gave us some indication. Uh, but that's uh, probably uh, deteriorated since because in June, you said that more than a quarter of parents were cutting back on heat, 23% uh, reducing electricity to try and make ends meet and a third buying less clothes. Uh, so there are undoubtedly huge amounts of people who are facing into very serious terrible problems uh, on a a daily basis. You said week to week Uh, and tell me a a little bit more about how this fund would work if it is week to week. I mean if somebody is going for uh, an essential payment an emergency payment uh, to cover heat this week, does that mean that they'll be back looking for a payment for electricity next week and then the following week uh, to try and get some money uh, to cover the cost of food and if that is the case and it's this ongoing situation, well surely you need something different than an emergency fund. You need something to uh, improve uh, their income levels. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's something that we've been saying to the government uh, for the last uh, year or so is that, you know, the the fact that so many families are having to go to uh, organisations like the uh, Nepal uh, and and come to ourselves looking for food vouchers and routinely coming back, that's obviously not sustainable. Can't, you know, it shows that there is an income issue. Um, so we we think that this measure, this sort of five five million that could be provided or there thereabouts, would help families, you know, for for a certain period of time where they're really really struggling and they do need essentials. But we also think that that needs to be uh, attached to other positive measures within the budget. So you know, we would want to see an increase to social uh, welfare, core source, social welfare rates. We'd want to see uh, around fuel allowance that, you know, the positive things that were done last year, that there continues, that more families, say families were, were right on that cusp of children, uh, having children who are living in deprivation or living in poverty, that they're able to get access to the fuel allowance. So we certainly understand that there's, you know, uh, families and parents couldn't just continually go to a fund such as this. Mm. There, there would need to be other measures put in place as well to make sure they have enough income to 
to get through uh, the winter and beyond. Okay, and tell me about uh, the increase in social welfare rates because Bernardo's, like many groups, have said that that should be at least €20 in the upcoming budget. Uh, But the government was given its options this week in terms of how it can use up the 6.7 billion euro uh, budget package that it'll deliver on the 27th of September from the tax strategy group. And there wasn't an option to increase welfare rates by 20 euro. There there is an option, uh, this group said, to increase it by 15 euro and that would seem to indicate that already that call for that 20 euro increase has been shot down. Yeah, so we certainly would have thought 20 euro is something that, you know, from the, the research and evidence we had with other partner or organisations uh, would think 20 euro is, is what is needed to, you know, match inflation uh, and to make sure that families who are, who might be struggling on low incomes uh, are getting sufficient income or they're thereabouts to, to meet uh, uh, to meet essentials. Um, 15 euro we think wouldn't be wouldn't be enough to cover that. Now, obviously, it depends on what other other me- measures are brought in. You know, if there are if it is a 15 euro increase aligned with other positive uh, measures. Uh, that would have an impact on uh, low-income families, you know, such things as fuel allowance, uh, really positive measures around uh, childcare for low-income families. You know, those sorts of measures, perhaps 15 euro is something that that is a positive step forward, Um, you know, but it, it would have to be aligned with a lot of other measures targeted at low-income families. Okay, Stephen, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always on the programme today. Stephen Moffat is uh, the National Policy Manager for Bernardo's. Michael Reed on LMFM. Today we celebrate International Youth Day and the power of partnerships across generations. This year's theme, Intergenerational Solidarity, Creating a World for All Ages, reminds us of a basic truth. We need people of all ages, young and old alike, to join forces to build a better world for all. Too often, ageism, bias and discrimination prevent this essential collaboration. When young people are shut out of the decisions being made about their lives, or when older people are denied a chance to be heard, we all lose. Solidarity and collaboration are more essential than ever as our world faces a series of challenges that threaten our collective future. This is uh, the Secretary-General of uh, the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, launching this year's International Youth Day. We need to support young people with massive investments in education and skills building, including through next month's Transforming Education Summit. We also need to support gender equality and expanded opportunities for young people to participate in civic and political life. It's not enough to listen to young people. We need to integrate them into decision-making mechanisms at the local, national, and international levels. This is at the heart of our proposal to establish a new youth office at the United Nations. And we need to ensure that older generations have access to social protection and opportunities to give back to their communities and share the decades of lived experience they have accumulated. On this important day, Let's join hands across generations to break down barriers and work as one to achieve a more equitable, just and inclusive world 
for all people. Antonio Guterres, International Youth Day today is being supported by St. Patrick's Mental Health Services. Louise O'Leary is their advocacy manager and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Louise, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Intergenerational solidarity sounds very, very fine. Uh, but what does it mean in practice, do you think? morning, Michael. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, Well, really, it's about appreciating, respecting and hearing the voices um, of young people and older people um, across the generations um, and ensuring they're not marginalised or sidelined. Because we know uh, for older generations, there's a huge amount of wisdom and and learning. um, And for younger generations, we really need to listen to their concerns and worries because they're going to uh, be the stewards of of the world we hand over to them. Okay, and they do worry, don't they, a lot of young people about a lot of issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we're living through an extremely challenging time. And, you know, any any night you put on the news uh, lately, um, is is you know there's there's a huge amount of very worrying things happening um, out there. So it's really important not only that young people are feel um, mm. heard and talking about their worries and supported, but that they see that the, the adults around them. Um, taking actions, responsible actions to respond to, to their worries. Yeah, no, I, I know I was very worried uh, when I heard this morning uh, that there might be power cuts when we go into the winter. I think uh, all of us were very worried when we saw the rivers run dry uh, across Europe or indeed some of uh, these wildfires in France uh, and elsewhere. And these are, are some of the issues that are on the minds of young people. But being progressive and active in response to these things, uh, you believe believe promotes positive mental health and I, I take it that's your interest in Youth Day this year at St. Patrick's Mental Health Services. Yeah, so we've, we've had a couple of projects um, over the last year. One focused on interge- intergenerational learning around mental health and well-being called Ways to Wellbeing. Um, and then another project we did called uh, Minding Yourself, Minding Nature, which was um, a nature well-being uh, resource, a free resource we developed for secondary students in collaboration with Birdwatch Ireland, Leave No Trace Ireland and Biodiversity in Schools. And um, that second resource is really pointing out that firstly, um, in terms of, well, more broadly speaking, in terms of connecting with nature, if we just focus on climate change and nature, firstly, Mm. um, connecting with nature has really good benefits to all our mental health no matter what age we are, younger or older. But if anyone is experiencing very understandable worries and distress, um, and, and it's important to point out that being worried and distressed about climate change is normal and natural. Um, it's, it's a logical response. It's a compassionate and caring response to what's happening around the world. Um, but but something that can help with that is connecting with nature, spending time in nature, um, make, contributing to con- conservation efforts, gardening, appreciating nature. Mm. Um, uh, if I can have a special benefits for young people too, there's lots of um, evidence emerging about uh, spending time outdoors and mm. adventurous play and nature-based activities for resilience. But importantly, we're more likely to take climate action as well when we've connected with nature. So it can help with feelings of um, worry and distress about climate anxiety to connect with nature um, and do positive uh, actions for nature. But it can 
it can also make us more likely to, to then get okay. more involved. In right. uh, I'm interested to hear you say gardening. I, I remember hearing once that weeding is one of the best things you can do for your mental health. Uh, and physical activity is very good for your mental health, generally, whether that's weeding or gardening or walking or whatever it is, getting outdoors and getting fresh air into your lungs and moving. Yes, absolutely. So that's that's heaps of evidence for again for across generations that staying fit and active uh, can be really healthy uh, generally, but also really good for our mental health. So it helps to reduce stress. Uh, it helps to promote feelings of relaxation. It helps to release endorphins. Um, I'm conscious of the weather, <laughs> so and that, that mm. might be hard for people to do. So sure. you know, adapting exercise routines is important at the moment. But yeah, absolutely, that's it something across generations that's really important to do mm. and exercising and spending time outdoors when the weather is conducive to same yeah. can be really helpful so even a- actually just spending time in, in natural environments just mm. appreciating them sure. um, can be helpful as well it's, as being a, active it's a great day for a swim Louise um, we, yeah. <laughs> we talk about intergenerational solidarity though uh, and uh, young and old people uh, sharing uh, not just the planet uh, but interacting with each other sharing our lives with yeah. each other and listening to and understanding and participating in the same things uh, but what are they doing on their phones? <laughs> well actually I think there's, there's been a few interesting projects where uh, young people have uh, volunteered to uh, work with older adults to, to help learn with technology and things like that so technology can be a way of connecting generations as well as um, as well as dividing, but um, do you mean in relation to sort of uh, the impacts? Well, I think I, I take it that there's a, a digital divide, uh, let's say, between yeah. the generations. I mean, I, I experience that digital divide myself when they're new. I still don't really understand mm. what TikTok is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but um, is it unhealthy? Uh, I, I suppose because I, I mean, you're looking at this uh, from positive mental health, and yeah. I, I think everybody listening can understand. That it's very healthy to get out uh, 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 in the open air and be active and all of that, uh, yeah. but is is it necessarily unhealthy to be on your phone? Um, because I'm sure that it's not all bad stuff that young people are looking at. No, no, and I, I think it's it's like anything in life. It's about moderation, um, and it's about the, the kind of the quality of what people are looking at. So um, you know, if it's yeah, it's there's lots of research around um, impacts of social media and the amount of time young people um, and indeed. Um, older people spend on 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 their phones and how that can mediate our mental health and well-being. Um, I mean, there's lots of online information about mental health and apps, etc. And, and you know, social media can have a positive in- impact in terms of connecting people. But it's, I think it's it's about the amount of time as well. You know, and recognizing that there are uh, potentially negative elements to it too. Also. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, mm. I think it's a, it's a moderate, moderate everything in moderation, and I think that applies to our our use of of digital okay. um, things as well. Very good. Listen, Louise, uh, happy Youth Day International. It's a United Nations International Youth uh, Day, uh, and that's why we heard Antonio Guterres uh, at uh, the start of our conversation. But thank you indeed uh, for joining Thanks us. Thanks so much, Michael. And if I can just mention that those resources, information about those yes. projects are available at walkinmyshoes.ie. Walkinmyshoes.ie. Louise O'Leary, Advocacy Manager with St. Patrick's Mental Health Services. Thank you very much indeed. We have to leave it there for today. I hope you have a a lovely uh, and cool weekend. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. 
the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237.